Meet Danny Shapiro, author of the instant New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance, where she shares her story about a family secret that turned her life upside down. Inheritance won the National Jewish Book Award this year. Danny is also the author of many other best-selling books and articles that have appeared in numerous internationally recognized publications. The only child in an Orthodox Jewish family, Danny was the apple of her father's eye. She had white blonde hair and blue eyes and was often told that she looked different. An older family friend once said, We could have used you in the ghetto, little blondie. You could have gotten us bread from the Nazis. This memory stayed with her and she was riddled with feelings of otherness from having been told, you're one of us and you're not one of us. As a teenager, Danny rebelled and left home. Her relationship with her mother was distant and strained. When she was in her 20s, Danny's life spiraled out of control. She felt lost. At 24, Danny's parents were in a terrible car accident and her father died two weeks later. The tragedy of her father's loss shifted her life and she began to return to her roots. She went back to school, got married, had a child, and became the author of multiple best-selling books. Despite her success, she felt a deep sense of longing. Then came the day that her life as she knew it was turned upside down. After her husband casually suggested that she take a simple DNA test, she was initially puzzled by the results, which showed that she was 52% Eastern European Ashkenazi, and the rest, a mixture of Irish, French, English, and German. She had assumed this was a mistake, because she knew exactly where she came from. Then came the shocking discovery. Her husband already knew what she couldn't bring herself to consider. The man that she thought was her father was not her biological father. Her parents had struggled with infertility issues and her mother's pregnancy was the result of assistance through artificial insemination using an anonymous donor. After working tirelessly to find the truth, she had to settle with the uncertainty of never knowing what really happened or why her parents kept this secret from her. She found her biological father, of whom she was the spitting image. All her life, she felt there was a secret, but what she didn't realize was that she was the secret. In this episode, we interview Danny on some of the life-changing lessons that she learned about secrets, identity, meaning, and forgiveness. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We are entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both inspired by each other's life experiences. We decided then and there to create this platform because we believe in the power of connection and growth through sharing our experiences. Here we share research-backed tools, tips, and shortcuts. And interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes who inspire us to create positive change in mind, body, and soul. From the inside out. Hello. It's so lovely to have you on our talk today. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I love I love your mission. I love what you're doing. I actually can't believe we're talking to you because I, I loved your book. That's the biggest compliment. I think that that's when, um, as as a writer, when whenever I've had, you know, a reader say to me, um, you know, either some version of you told my story or I couldn't put it down or I just felt like I knew you, that to me is, that's the intimacy and the connection of writing is that, it's a way of reaching out, you know, per- person to person, soul to soul, and say, you know, me too, I've been there too. Your book, Rivka and I both read it and blown away by your story, by your vulnerability, your authenticity, 
and how many questions you ask that resonate with the fundamental question of what makes us who we are. Your writing is incredible. And I think that it kind of reads like a novel in that it's captivating. It's beautifully written. Um, Did it feel to you like you were kind of writing somebody else's story? So, you know, with, with, with Inheritance, it's my 10th book. And I can't imagine having been able to write this story, which, you know, turns out to be the story of my life, the story of how I came to be, the story of everything I never knew. If I hadn't had the history as a writer of having crafted book after book after book, whether novels or other memoirs, so that I was able to think of the storytelling as I was writing it. I didn't feel like I was telling somebody else's story. I definitely felt that I was telling my story, but there was so much about my story that I didn't yet know. So it was kind of a detective story that I wasn't inventing. It was a detective story that I was discovering as I went along and as I did my research and as I spoke to more and more people and as I thought more and more deeply about what it meant to make the discovery that I did. Yeah. Yeah. um, Your book also carries many powerful lessons about identity and connection. And you discovered that the man you thought was your father was in fact not your biological father and discovered secrets kept from you since you were a child. I actually found it really inspiring to see how powerful connection and love can be. Even though you found out your father was not your biological father, you still dedicated the book to him, which shows the power of love, connection, and and shaping our identity. I wanted to know how did your identity change after you went through these huge life events? I think that I finally was able to put the pieces together of my identity. There was always something from the time that I was very small, even though to the best of my knowledge, I was growing up with my two parents who were my biological parents in this extended family that was my biological family. Into this world, you know, I, I should say my father's world, my father's family's world was, you know, I write in the book that it, they're a family very conscious of their own posterity. You know, we're generations of portraits and photographs and newspaper clippings and you know, it was a family that had a lot of, uh, had and has a lot of yichis. And in a very, very quiet, humble way, is very aware of that and of doing good in the world and, and of the good that had been done by generations past in the world. And I, I felt very proud to be part of that lineage and very protected by it uh, in a way. So making the discovery in midlife that in fact, biologically, it was not my lineage, that in fact, my uh, parents had sought fertility treatments and that my biological father was someone else entirely, an anonymous sperm donor initially. That was all I knew. That was extremely challenging at first, but it also, over the course of these last few years, has come to make an incredible amount of sense to me because there was a way in which even though I felt that I ought to feel completely sort of grounded and part of this family and this community, and I took such pride in it, I actually didn't entirely feel like I fit in. And I didn't know why. It never occurred to me, well, maybe I'm not actually related to them. That never occurred. How how could a thought like that ever 
enter a child's mind. It never right. entered the mind. So I just had this feeling of otherness without understanding why. And in my childhood and in my teenage years, and even as a young woman, that feeling of otherness was pretty destructive for me. That was not a good thing to feel. And so in midlife, you know, as I said, when I, when I found out, oh, that's, that's why that's that it was not just I don't want listeners to misunderstand that I'm saying that biology is all that matters because it's the last thing that I'm saying. A secret was kept from me about the truth of my genetic identity, a secret that I believe that on some level or another, both of my parents knew. And so there was, you know, I've written before, years before I ever knew this story, I had written sentences like, I grew up in a house full of secrets. And I thought that I could have identified what those secrets were, but the biggest secret of all was me. And that's something that never had occurred to me until I stumbled upon it. There's just so many people out there who have secrets, but think that it's better to be kept under wraps. So like, how has the notion of secrets changed for you? That's a great question. I've learned so much about secrets, especially in the last few years. But, you know, ironically, I suppose, my body of work as a writer from the time I published my first novel when I was 27 years old, I've always written about secrets. I've always written about secrets in families. I've always written about the corrosive power of secrets and the way that just because something is sort of shoved under the rug doesn't mean it goes away. But I never knew why. I just, that was kind of my thematic material, or I thought I knew why. I mean, I knew my parents each had a few secrets here and there that kind of came out over the years. But one of the things that I learned both in my own story and in the stories of so many people that I've spoken with in the last few years since the book came out, and also since I created my own podcast called Family Secrets. Yes, I started listening to it. It's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, I'll talk more about that if you want, but where there are secrets, there is almost always shame first, because why else keep a secret? It's like there's this undercurrent of shame which goes something like, no one would understand this. We will be shunned. People will look at us differently. Um, Our children will look at us differently. It's better that nobody know. Uh, What we don't know won't hurt us, that old platitude. And, you know, I'm really here to say, as someone who has been through this and has spoken to many people, who have been through their own family secrets, that what we don't know absolutely does have the power to hurt us. But, you know, when my parents were going through infertility treatments in the early 1960s, here was this Orthodox couple. They both married each other later in life. They each had had previous marriages, which in, you know, in my father's world, which was the Orthodox world, was, you know, unheard of really. Um, He was divorced, you know, in the 1940s, and then he remarried in the 1950s, and he was widowed very soon thereafter. And my mother had been married and with no children. My father was almost 40, and my mother was in her mid-30s when they married. And all around them, my father's sister had four children, his younger sister, his younger brother had four children. In the years that my parents were trying to have children, his younger brother and his wife had four children in those five years, and my parents were struggling and struggling to have a child. And so ultimately, and this is just what I've put together, you know, my mother very much wanted to bear her own child, and this was the only way that was going to happen. And so they went 
down a road where they were told by doctors who were gods in those days, by anyone in that field, by anyone they would have spoken with, forget this ever happened. Go home and tell no one. Do not tell your own parents. Do not tell your siblings. Do not tell your friends. The child will never know. And everyone, and this is many, many thousands of people, not just my parents, everyone who went through infertility treatments in which donor sperm was used was told to forget that it ever happened and fully planned to go to the grave with that secret. And my parents both did go to the grave with that secret. But then this kind of extraordinary thing happened, which was science, which was um, you know, the, the idea that you could spit into a plastic vial and all these secrets would be revealed. And then, of course, the internet, which, you know, puts everything on warp speed. So that's my parents and their generation and the generations that followed of parents could not have dreamt that that secret would ever come out. But the fact is that that secret affected me. If it had never come out and I had lived out my entire life without knowing the truth of my identity, even though I have a very good life and a very rich and contented life and a happy marriage and a beautiful child and a, and a, and a good career. And I'm very, very lucky in so many ways. I always would have felt that little bit of a sense of yes, but there's something I don't know. There's something that doesn't make sense. I would have to my dying day felt that way. Um, and so I feel very, very fortunate to have accidentally discovered this huge missing piece it doesn't change anything about my love for my father. I had to get there in terms of, you know, people would very kindly and, you know, meaning to help very early on after my discovery say to me, well, no matter what, your father's still your father. I had to go through a lot to make peace with the fact that my parents had known something so tremendous about me that I didn't know. But I got there. And as you said, my my book is dedicated to my father. I think my father was heroic in what he did and loving and sacrificing in a way it couldn't have been easy for him to make the decision that he did. And I, I know in every cell of my body that he loved me no less for knowing that I wasn't his biological child. And I love him no less knowing that he wasn't my biological father. But there's the fact, which is that he wasn't. And there's also you know, the nature that I inherited from, you know, the, the, right. the man who is. Right. Well, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking there's, there's different types of secrets. There's a secret that, let's say, your parents withheld from you. And then there are secrets that people shared just because they want to let go of their past or share with the world or share with others what they've been through. They're not hiding anything from somebody else, but really just wanting to share so I just wonder, do you believe there are times when secrets might be better off not disclosed because they might cause more harm than good by sharing them with everybody? That's interesting. I, I On my podcast at one point, I interviewed the therapist, Lori Gottlieb, who wrote a best-selling book uh, last year called... Uh, maybe you should talk to someone. Maybe you we, should talk we, to someone. We interviewed her. Oh, of course. Yeah, Lori, Lori and I, become we become friends. Um, I asked her that very question as a therapist. And, um, you know, do you think that there's ever a reason to keep a secret? And her response was ultimately no, 
that that secrets, whether, you know, the tagline of family secrets is the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others and the secrets we keep from ourselves. You know, there are many different kinds of secrets, but that ultimately, you know, Carl Jung refers to secrets as toxic poison and doesn't differentiate between kinds of secrets. I'll give you an example on, on my podcast. Uh, I had a guest on for an episode named um, Ariana Neumann, who wrote an absolutely magnificent memoir that came out earlier this year called When Time Stopped. She grew up in Caracas. Her father was an industrialist, extraordinarily successful. She lived this magical childhood, only child. Her father was much older than her mother. And she would awake sometimes to hearing her father screaming in the middle of the night, waking up from a nightmare, speaking in a language that she didn't know. She happened upon a box, literally a box, like a Pandora's box that she opened up and there was a passport um, or identification papers uh, that had, you know, the Third Reich on, 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 on them and a photograph of her father with a different name, but it's her father. And it turns out, and this isn't a spoiler, the book is all about this, that her father was Jewish and had, uh, had grown up in, in, in Czechoslovakia and lost most of his family in the camps and escaped in the most audacious way when he was 18 years old, like went to Berlin, went to Berlin in the middle of the war and worked in a Nazi-owned factory. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary story, but when he, when he escaped and he started over and he ended up in Venezuela, he just basically decided that he was a new person that that had never happened and that, you know, his child, you know, would never know that history. And so now it's all these years later and it's after her father's death. And she goes into this tremendous research about her family history because it's her family's history. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't think that, you know, picking and choosing what's comfortable to know or not comfortable to know or comfortable to share and not comfortable to share is ultimately how we connect and grow close to each other. I think where there are secrets, there's there's always a kind of division, even if the division is within the self, even if the division is, you know, in the confines of one's own inner life, knowing, you know, there's something that I know that I can't share or, or won't share. Um, I mean, that's in all of the different kinds of stories of people that I talk to. It's not just stories about parents. It's so many different kinds of stories. It's always kind of a holding onto a sense of shame or being threatened because there's a fear that they'll be shunned or cut off. And then in 40 episodes of Family Secrets, 40 guests, 40 stories, at the end of every episode, I always ask, do you wish you hadn't found this out? And there isn't one single guest who has said yes. Yes, I wish I didn't know. I was also talking about, let's say, not because of the shame, but because you feel you're going to hurt somebody. That's so complicated, right? Because the secrets have ripple effects. So, you know, within a family, say, it may be healing for one member of the family or a few members of the family to have that information, but it may be hurtful to others. Right. There's no easy, you know, Solomonic answer to that. It's so complex. It's why, you know, when people come to me as they have from the time inheritance came out last January, January, 2019, since then I've spoken with literally thousands of people. I mean, I was on book tour for a year in like 40, 50 cities 
all over the country. And what I started seeing happening was, for instance, I would look out into the audience and I would see couples there, often older couples. And I would think like, who are you? Why are you here? And afterwards, if they came up to me, I would discover these are parents who have children who they have withheld the truth of their identity to, and they've read my book and they're, they're thinking, what do we do now? Do we sit down with our children and tell them? Middle-aged children, children in their 30s or 40s or 50s or older. There were elderly gentlemen in audiences. And I realized, oh, those are sperm donors who are nervous now or, or thinking about the possibility that biological children that they never thought would ever, you know, that they never thought about ever again um, would be able to seek them out. What would the ripple effect be on a family to discover that there are other biological children out there? Or on, you know, in the case of my biological father, for example, his wife of 50 years never knew that he had donated sperm, not because he actually kept it a secret. He just never thought about it again. And she was not happy. I mean, she probably still isn't really happy, but she was really not happy at the beginning. She said to him, how could you have been so stupid? Um, which of course is a very painful thing for me to hear because his being quote unquote stupid is literally why I'm sitting here talking to you, you know, why, why I exist at all. Or people discover that they have half siblings because they do a DNA test. And then that might mean that their father had an affair, or it might mean that their mother put up a child for adoption before, you know, as a teenager and never told anyone. Um, and those kinds of secrets are going to have ripple effects on a family. And there are going to be people who want to know it and people who don't want to know it. You know, and this is maybe a cop-out or maybe not, I'm not sure, but it almost doesn't matter because this time we're living in, which is a really, this is like one of the revolutions of our time. It's one of the, one of the most extraordinary things about being alive in 2020. Of course, there are many extraordinary things about being alive in 2020, but one of them is that these DNA discoveries, but the, not just the discoveries, the fact that so many people, it's the American pastime, it's the number one American hobby. DNA tests, you know, home DNA testing is the number one holiday gift in America. Happy Hanukkah, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Everyone is given it, you know, you know, as 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 a thing that a family I haven't done it yet. Eden, have uh -huh. you? I have. I'm just oh. imagining a Thanksgiving dinner after having <laughs> made all these new discoveries. But. Right. Well, you know, usually what is it is, is actually, so it happens around, you know, December. So it's like Hanukkah slash Christmas. And then Pesach slash Easter is when the results come back. And more and more, there are quite a significant number of people finding out that they didn't know everything that they thought they knew. Maybe not as dramatically as mine, but various different kinds of um, generational things that, that people didn't know. I, I just I, really wanted to know, back to what we're saying about sharing secrets, if you feel you had more relief by sharing your secret to individual people, your family and friends, or by writing your book and sharing that with the world. That's a great question. Um, by writing the book. Uh, because that's what I do. Uh, you know, people said to me, did you think about whether you were going to write a book about this? I didn't think about it. It's what, like finding exactly the right words for complex feelings and situations 
is what I do. And it's how I come to know my own heart. It's how I come to know my own mind. I can speak, and sometimes I can speak more eloquently than others, but I never feel like I'm totally saying everything that I want to say in exactly the way I want to say it when I'm speaking. When I'm writing, I can spend years alone in a room with the contents of my own heart and mind and find the words to make it really come together. And also, in the case of inheritance, you know, those are words, this is a book that actually has impacted many, many thousands of people's lives because like the parents who read the book and say, you know what, we're going to sit down and tell our children, or like the people who make these discoveries, I feel like you know, inheritance is one of the first things that they do. They, someone tells them about this book and then they read it and they feel less alone. So there's been this extraordinary sense of purpose that I have where, because this is a very, very um, self-alienating discovery to discover after thinking that you are a member of a biological family to discover that you are not. And to just underscore that, it's not not being a member of a biological family. You know, when adoptive parents often, when they haven't read the book, they'll, they'll, they'll say to me, but wait a minute, is, is what you're saying that nature is all that matters? Is what you're saying that biology is all that matters? And I will say to them, do your children know they were adopted? Of course they do. When, when, when did you tell them? Oh, they always knew. They knew from the time that they were very small. And my response is, okay, so your children are growing up knowing their, their identity story, knowing the truth of their identity story, knowing that when they don't look like their biological parents or that they have some kind of inchoate sense of yearning, they know why. I'm not saying that's necessarily comfortable or easy, but they know why. So they have a sense, adoptees have a sense of their own story. When a secret has been kept, then someone who's growing up in a family thinking it's their biological family is actually growing up like I did, looking around saying like, I don't, you know, I'm, it's not a conscious thing. I never looked at my father and thought, I don't look like my father. I never looked at my father and thought, I'm not seeing the, the familiar in my father. But I wasn't. And so that alien, that sense of alienation to make that discovery later in life as an adult or even as a teenager, to have thought one thing about yourself and then discover another. It's something that like I'm so grateful that my book is out there that, you know, it's, it's, I didn't write it just for people who made these discoveries. I wrote it for everyone. I wanted to write about what was universal um, about my experience. But so that is a very healing thing to have been able to spend a year up until the pandemic being on the road literally every week all over the world. I, I, mean, I was supposed to go to Paris and then to Sydney right mm. when the pandemic hit to, you know, to speak and to go on book tour. Would have um, been in my hometown. I'm that's, what I was thinking. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Um, I, was so, I was so disappointed not to, not to get to go there. But yeah, one day you'll get there. It's I will. To have that sense of purpose. I mean, that's something that has been true of my life, all my life, is trying to create a sense of meaning and purpose out of what is uh, complex and difficult and seemingly random. That's not to say that it's not helpful to talk about it. It is helpful to talk about it. But if you're asking which was more helpful, I'm just so glad that I could find the words. 
Right. I hear you. And even with the discoveries, there's still so much more that you don't know and that you might never find out, you know, did my father and mother really know? And um, so with, with those things, are there still questions? Are you still searching or have you come to terms with the not knowing and the uncertainty of that? So as we're having this conversation, I'm sitting in my little office at home in rural Connecticut and behind me, you can't see it. I don't think on the wall. Oh yeah, you kind of can. We see, we see a painting. Yes. So that is a piece of artwork by my friend Debbie Millman, who is a very well-known writer and artist and podcaster. And I bought it after I made my discovery. And what it says in her really beautiful script is this, just this, I'm comfortable not knowing. And that is really the work of my life now, because I will never be able to know absolutely for sure what my parents were conscious of, what they were told, and therefore how we went through life together. Uh, I'll never be absolutely sure. My research and even some of the things that I found out after I finished Inheritance lead me to believe that in one way or another, consciously or unconsciously, that they knew, like on the, on the scale of knowing, especially because, you know, in a sort of bizarre twist of nature, I came out looking really very, very much, I now know, like my biological father. He is from Western Europe, England, France, Sweden, Germany, Ireland. His forebearers, so technically my ancestors biologically, uh, were, were early settlers in New England. They came over on the Mayflower. Like, you can't make this stuff up. And so my parents, as did I, all of my childhood and into my teenage years, constantly heard people say, my gosh, where did she come from? Look at little Blondie. You know, she could have gotten us bread from the Nazis in the ghettos. Yes, um, Mrs. Kushner. Mrs. Kushner. And comments were constantly made about the way that I looked constantly. And that was confusing to me because those comments made me, underscored my feeling that really I didn't belong somehow. I was this freak of nature, this Orthodox Jewish girl who looked like she had wandered over from, you know, Sweden, you know, into the shuttle. But my parents also also heard those comments all the time, and probably more than I did. And they had gone. I mean, these are just facts. My parents heard that all the time. Plus, my parents went to an institute that was known for its use of donor sperm. So whether or not they were trying to have their own child biologically over a period of years, and my mother had multiple miscarriages during those years. And, and also, I, I have been told by people who I've since discovered who were connected to the Institute uh, or conceived themselves at the Institute around the same time as I was conceived, that they were seated down across a desk from the people running, you know, running the program, that they were, blood type was discussed, um, you know, papers were signed. I was told that. Now, that doesn't mean it necessarily happened with my parents, but I was told that that was the protocol. I was also told that parents would be led into almost like a gray area, 
you know, sort of place of innuendo and sort of obfuscation where the words might never have been used. The words donor sperm might not have been used. The word treatment might have been used. I mean, I write about this a lot in the book, but to go back to shame, depending on how deeply a couple might not want to be aware of what they were doing, it was possible, I suppose, that a couple could have gone through this whole process and simply have decided, well, the child is biologically ours. Um, And I've heard stories of people who made discoveries like mine, whose mothers were still living, who went to their mothers to confront their mothers and say, mom, I don't understand. And their mothers would say, oh, that never happened. No, that didn't happen. So who knows is the answer. I mean, you asked about peace. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'll always be mulling it over a little bit, but it's certainly not ruling my life. Um, I feel enormously fortunate. I had a great dad. I think about him and I talk to him in my mind every day. I feel he's with me right now as I'm talking to you. Uh, without exception, whenever I talk about him, he sort of shows up and I can feel him, you know, in, you know, within me. Uh, so special. So yes. special. Uh, my relationship with my mother was more complicated, but, you know, I, I was very privileged in, you know, in many, many ways. And then. Have you forgiven your parents? Mm, like yeah. What is forgive? Yes. Yeah. I, 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 one of the gifts of this whole journey has been that I really had to imagine who my parents were uh, as, as young, hopeful, desperate parents, you know, just trying to have a child, you know, in this, in this world where having children was everything, you know, they did what they had to do. Initially I felt betrayed because keeping a secret on this level, I think we now understand with where we, you know, with everything that we know today is not the way to go psychologically or emotionally. Parents who have children using donor sperm or donor gametes or surrogates or embryos that aren't their own, et cetera, et cetera, are counseled today for the most part that their child should always know. Although I must say that's not always true. I I do know that there are plenty of parents out there who still are not telling their children, which to which all I can say is your child's going to find out. Your child is going to find out. That horse has fled the barn. Um, there are no more secrets of these kinds. But in my parents' day, it was the only option. And, you know, this is a little bit of a platitude, but I do believe that they did the best they could. Yeah. And the nature of secret change in that today, it's a lot It's a lot harder to keep a secret. We know from research that, first of all, about intergenerational transmission, that it might come out in other ways. It can be manifested in other issues, even physical issues. Yeah, I think it's really amazing that you were able to forgive. And there are so many people out there that can't get to that place of forgiveness for whatever they've been through in their childhood or whatever secret was kept from them. And I was wondering, was it time that brought you to a place of forgiveness? I think with secrets, when we find them out is as important as what we find out. Uh, I think I would have a very different story if I had discovered this when I was in my mid-20s, say, shortly after my father's death. I don't know that the young woman that I was could have arrived at this place of understanding at that time. I also hear stories of people who are in their 80s who make discoveries like this. I think that would also be extremely tough. 
the idea that there's nothing left to be discovered. There's no one left who might know anything or to talk to about it. And there's not much time for me to have made this discovery at a, at a point where I was in a place of real stability in my life with a family of my own. The fact that I'm a writer and that I had the opportunity to make meaning out of out of this discovery and to to reach so many people, to become a central figure in this conversation, which is what's happened. And also I would be remiss without saying, finding my biological father, being able to know, to look at the face of the person that biologically I come from. The fact that he ultimately was willing to meet me and that he has been kind, that I received from him family and medical history. I mean, because let's just think about that for a half a second. All these people who are walking around without this knowledge of their genetic history, it means they're walking around without knowledge of their medical history. And it means that they, like I did, are going to doctor's appointments and giving incorrect medical history for themselves and for their children and for their grandchildren and on and on. Um, So the implications of that are huge. So I've been so fortunate. And and I think that that's, it's been easy for me to arrive over these last few years at a place of compassion for my parents. I think it, it's, it's harder. And, you know, there are going to be people listening to this conversation for whom it's hard because they found a biological parent and that, and that parent was long dead, or they couldn't find that biological parent. And they would always have a question mark or they found that biological parent and had a door slammed in their face or were at a time of disequilibrium in their own lives where this discovery made things even shakier. There's so many permutations to a discovery that's world rocking. What role did God play in your story and in your discovery? Really good question. Uh, <laughs> I think it's all God. I mean, I had the feeling from pretty much day one that I was being led. It felt miraculous to me what was happening and the way that it was happening and the way that the people who I reached out to responded to me. It felt like God was in the room. It felt like God was in the room when I was uh, sitting down with Haskell Lookstein, with Rabbi Haskell Lookstein, uh, asking him if he had known anything because the, the Lucksteins and, and, and the Shapiros were connected families. And I thought maybe my father as a young man had gone to see Rabbi Lucksteen. God was in the room when I sat down with my aunt Shirley Feuerstein um, in Chicago to tell her that I wasn't her brother's biological child, wondering whether she had known. And uh, you know she was 93 and a half years old when we had that conversation. And her response that day to me it was like she was summoning like a lightning bolt. She was like, she was so connected to every word that came out of her mouth was a healing, uh, illuminating word, every word. That's no exaggeration. And she's still, you know, four years later, she is still very much with us. And every time I speak with her, I have that experience. That's Um, beautiful. You had mentioned the Lubavitcher Rebbe a few times throughout your book, which was enlightening to us because we are Chabad women and the Rebbe has a huge influence in our lives. And we wanted to know, has he had an impact in your life? And if so, what has it been? I mention the Lubavitcher Rebbe because he factored into a story that I found out 
about my father after my father died. And it was a story that was a secret. It was a story that I had never known. You know, when I mentioned earlier that I had grown up in a house full of secrets, that would have been one of them. My father, after he was divorced from his first wife, uh, met and fell in love with a, a young woman named Dorothy Griffiths, who um, was similarly from an Orthodox family uh, in New York. And they fell in love and they proceeded to make plans to be married. And Dorothy um, was 26 years old. And it turns out that she was terminally ill. And her family knew that and had not, she did not know. Um, this was, again, the kinds of secrets that were kept in those days. And wow. uh, Dorothy did not know she was dying. And her family, her parents knew and didn't tell my father. And shortly before they were to be wed, a cousin of my father's, who was a doctor, was just had a hunch about Dorothy and some of the symptoms that she had had. And he was able to see her medical records in the hospital. And he saw her diagnosis. And through a chain of people, uh, including actually Rabbi Lookstein's, um, uh, let's see, Rabbi Lookstein's sister's husband was my father's best friend. Uh, he factored into that story too. They made a decision to, to tell my dad. So my dad was finding out really pretty much on the eve of his wedding that he was marrying a woman who was dying. And my aunt Shirley, who I ju just mentioned, who is now 96. May she lived till 120 plus. <laughs> they, she didn't want to tell their parents. They were not from a Hasidic family. They were modern Orthodox, you know, Upper West Side Jews. And they had their own fold and their own rabbis and their own people. But Shirley thought, well, I need to get, we need to get an opinion that is unimpeachable, but that is outside of our fold because we don't want our parents to find out. So my aunt Shirley and my father went to see the Rebbe and Shirley describes the story to me. If listeners want to read this story, I actually wrote uh, an essay that was published in the New Yorker a long time ago, but it's on, it's on my website, which you can, you can certainly look up. It's a, a piece I'm very proud of actually, because I had to research meticulously a piece in which the two, well, I've had to do it again twice in my life. I've had to do this in which both the, both of the principal characters were, were gone and it had to be able to be fact-checked. So um, my aunt Shirley told me the story of going to see the Rebbe with my father and the Rebbe listened to my father's story. And then he said, my advice to you is postpone and postpone. And my father disregarded the Rebbe's advice and went forward and married Dorothy and she died six months later. And when I was writing that piece, I was able to speak to so many people who had known them together, her sister, friends of theirs, and every single person when I was interviewing them, unbidden, said to me, she was the love of his life. Dorothy was the love of your father's life, um, mm -hmm. which was such a complicated and painful thing to hear because I found myself wishing that she had lived so they could have lived out their lives together, which of course would have mean, meant that I would never have existed at all because he never would have met my mother and none of what happened would have happened. But in regard to the, to the Rebbe, I found myself for years afterwards puzzling over why the Rebbe would have said postpone and postpone. But what I came to realize is that what he was, he was protecting my father. He was, as I understand it, protecting the living in a way, because after Dorothy died, my father in the Orthodox community, people, people referred to him as poor Paul. His name was Paul, poor Paul. 
You know, so my father had gone from being like the oldest son and shining star of this illustrious family to being poor Paul because so much difficulty and tragedy had rained down on him. And, you know, ultimately, I think the, the Rebbe was trying to protect my father from, from being widowed on top of being divorced uh, and from therefore probably not being the most eligible of Orthodox men uh, in that community. So I've, I've just kind of had a dialogue in my, in my mind with that story for many years. And of course, it's a tremendous honor to have had a kind of tangential interaction. Wow, that, that is fascinating. Does your Jewish identity inspire you now? Uh, back then, reading your book, you were really on just a mission to find out who your parents were, not as much as finding out if you were still Jewish, which you are because your mother's Jewish. Does your Jewish identity now inspire you? Yeah, it does. When people would helpfully remind me that I was still Jewish because my mother's Jewish, that didn't really mean very much to me. I know, I know halachically that that is true, but it didn't mean that much to me because my sense of myself as Jewish never came from my mother. It came from my father. My mother, my mother, I should say, was not uh, really, her heart was never in it in terms of being Orthodox. She became Orthodox to marry my father. Uh, she was, many years after she died, a, f- a friend of hers said, I never understood your mother becoming Orthodox. She was an atheist. You know, what was an atheist doing with two sinks and two dishwashers? And um, <laughs> uh, and that's really, I mean, it's the truth. My mother, my mother fell in love with my father and she, she became Orthodox as a, as a prerequisite to marrying him. But so my feeling of myself as Jewish never came from her. It came from him and, and it comes from him and it comes from my aunt Shirley and it comes from the Shapiro family history may not be mine genetically, but it's mine psychologically and it's mine emotionally. During the pandemic, I've been attending um, Zoom Shabbat services uh, because I also, I live in a part of the world in rural Connecticut where there actually is a Chabad, but I've never really found my community where I live. It's a very rural, spread out community. And now I can be part of a shul in, in, in New York City with, you know, 700 congregants and feel very, very at home there, which I, which I don't think would have happened. That's really beautiful. Um, we just wanted to know if you have a favorite quote um, or a quote that you live by, one that has resonated with you that you could share with us and our listeners. Mm-hmm. I have a few and three of them came to mind. So I'll give you all three. Yeah. Awesome. One is um, from a Hebrew Sabbath prayer that I've never been able to identify, and my aunt Shirley couldn't either, but maybe you both can. And it begins, uh, days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. Um, and then I can't quote the exact rest of it to you, but then it's a, then it becomes a prayer, of, you know, asking God to, you know, help us to see the miracles, you know, that are in front of us or as, as Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, once wrote to face sacred moments. I don't want to walk, walk sightless among miracles, and their miracles are all around us. I mean, the Hebrew quote that comes to mind, well, Hanukkah is coming up, is Al Hanisim Vela Prokam Vela Grod Vela Chuat. The Al Hanifla Acha Sita Lavatainu Bayomim Hahem Bisman Hazer. The miracles of today, reunion miracles from before. I don't know, yeah. I don't know the line. Yeah, there. I love that. Another is um, from actually the Gospel of St. Thomas, and it is. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Mm. 
And then lastly, my dear friend Sylvia Borstein, who is an 84-year-old Jewish Buddhist mindfulness teacher in Northern California, who is one of the most amazing people I know. Um, She has a little mantra or wish or prayer to kind of rest the mind during meditation, which is, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your story with the world. And and hopefully from here on, secrets will be viewed as toxic poison, as you mentioned, and the truth will set us all free. I'm into that. I love speaking with you both and such wonderful, probing, thoughtful questions. Thank you so much. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Okay.